Good evening. Biden says war with China over Taiwan is not ruled out. We speak with Nixon's official translator on his 1972 trip to China. A Russian soldier is sentenced to life for war crimes in Ukraine. COVID rises, especially in North Korea and Eritrea. And Reverend Billy's ode to the trees of East River Park. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, May 23rd, 2022. President Joe Biden said today he'd be willing to use force to defend Taiwan against China in a comment stretching the limits of U.S. policy towards the island. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's the commitment we made. That's the commitment we made. We are not. Look, here's the situation. We agree with a one-China policy. We signed on to it, and all the attendant agreements made from there. But the idea that that it can be taken by force, just taken by force, is just not is just not appropriate. It will dislocate the entire region, and be another action similar to what happened in in uh, in Ukraine. And so it's a it's a burden that is even stronger. President Biden later in the day, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin maintained Biden's remarks offered no change to U.S. policy on Taiwan. Is the U.S. making a commitment to send troops to defend Taiwan in the event of an invasion by China? As the president said, one China policy has not changed. He reiterated that policy and our commitment to peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. He also highlighted our commitment under the Taiwan Relations Act to help provide Taiwan the means to defend itself. Our policy has not changed. Is the U.S. making a commitment by saying that they are willing to defend them militarily? I think the president was clear on the fact that the policy has not changed. As Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, Washington is required by law to provide Taiwan with the means to defend itself. It's long followed a policy of strategic ambiguity on whether it would intervene militarily to protect Taiwan. Biden made a similar comment in October, saying, yes, we have a commitment to do that when asked if the United States would come to the defense of Taiwan. At that time, a White House spokesperson said Biden was not announcing any change in U.S. policy, and one analyst referred to the comment as a gaffe. But a noted former U.S. diplomat and businessman, Chaz Freeman, who acted as the chief translator during President Richard Nixon's ice-breaking trip to China in 1972, says Biden's comments mean when it comes to China, the U.S. has no credibility at all. This is the fourth or fifth time that President Biden has um, slipped and made such a commitment, apparently, um, and the fourth or fifth time that his staff has had to walk it back. Um, the Taiwan Relations Act does not authorize our going to war over Taiwan with China. Uh, and the president does not have the constitutional authority to start a war uh, that does not involve an attack on the United States. Uh, so this is a big deal, uh, both in terms of relations with China and the encouragement it may give to people in Taiwan to do things that provoke an attack from the China mainland. Is this a, a problem with President Biden's acuity, mental acuity, or is he uh, just chomping at the bit? It's hard to say. He's clearly voicing something close to an American national political consensus about defending Taiwan. And that is precisely why the Chinese cannot ignore his comment, which is a direct challenge to them.
it will not be walked back in effect, whatever the White House staff do. And the fact that he's, if he said it once, that might be excused as, as you say, ineptitude or senility or something. But he said it four or five times. You can't walk that back. What is the relationship between the U.S. and Taiwan uh, regarding China or the other way around? And In the 1950s and 60s, up through the Nixon administration, the United States was committed to Chiang Kai-shek and his government, which was in Taiwan, to which he had retreated after losing the civil war on the mainland. And we banned the Chinese communist government in Beijing from appearing at the U.N. or anywhere else officially. We had no relationship with it. When Nixon went to China, the Taiwan issue was the major obstacle to enlisting China in the containment of the Soviet Union. And in order to do that, we agreed that we would sever diplomatic recognition of Taipei as the government of China, that we would withdraw all our forces and installations from the island, that we would terminate our defense treaty with Taipei in accordance with its terms, all of which we did. Problem is that in the ensuing 50 years, almost all of these conditions have faded away. We now have a relationship with Taiwan, which is very difficult to distinguish from an official relationship. Uh, there are apparently American forces back on the island, and now Mr. Biden seems to have announced a return to a defense commitment to the island. Uh, so we're back in the middle of the Chinese Civil War. What exactly did Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon want to achieve? The main purpose of their visit, uh, visits, I should say, was to enlist China against the Soviet Union in containment of it. We had earlier depended on Taiwan to contain China. So that was quite a shift. It paid off big time in the aftermath of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, when China was the major source for the United States of weaponry and support for the resistance to the Soviet occupation there. During the 1980s, we had a flourishing relationship. That ended as the Cold War ended, when the Soviet Union ceased to be a threat, and the strategic rationale for the relationship basically largely evaporated. What would a war between U.S. and China over Taiwan look like, in your opinion? There's a very grave risk that it would go nuclear. Uh, for China, this is an all-important issue. Uh, Taiwan is a constant reminder of China's humiliation by foreigners in the past. It is an American sphere of influence, in effect, on what the Chinese regard as their territory. They care very deeply about it. They're uh, very cautious people. Uh, but uh, there is a real possibility of escalation to a nuclear strike on the United States. Uh, and uh, in pursuit of that, the Chinese seem to be preparing a major buildup of their nuclear forces. They don't want to attack the United States. But if, in their view, the United States attacks them as they are trying to sort out their problems with the Chinese across the Taiwan Strait, they will react, and they will react in ways that are very, very dangerous for both countries. Chaz Freeman 
He was principal translator to Richard Nixon in China in 1972. He was assistant secretary of defense for international security affairs from 1993 to 94 and is chair of Projects International Incorporated, a group that helps investors put their money in emerging markets. And talking about emerging markets, in Davos, Switzerland, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky urged the world's political and business elite to set new precedents for punishment for Russia's invasion of his country, calling for attendees at the opening session of the World Economic Forum to decide whether brute force will rule the world. Every company that leaves the Russian market to continue operating in Ukraine will have access not only to our market of 40 million consumers, but also to the common market of Europe and your brands, your positions. They will only increase because you would truly support the protection of freedom. Our representatives here in Danvos can inform all of you on the details of the prospects that Ukraine opens for your businesses. Ladies and gentlemen, we offer the world to set a precedent for rebuilding the country after the war, which will show everyone who dreams of destroying the life of a neighbor that the war is not working. I invite you to take part in this rebuilding. The amount of work is enormous. We have more than half a trillion dollars in losses. Tens of thousands of facilities were destroyed. We need to rebuild entire cities and industries. Part of the long speech that was given by the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, today at Davos, Switzerland. Davos is a site of annual forums for the past 50 years where political and financial elites have friendly meetings in a Swiss ski resort town to debate global economic perils and possibilities. No Russian representatives from government nor business were invited to this year's Davos Forum, which usually takes place in the winter. It's the first forum since the 1990s when armed conflicts broke out among nations of the former Yugoslavia to be held while war rages on the continent. And a Ukrainian court sentenced Russian tank commander Sergeant Vadim Shishimarin, 21, to life in prison for war crimes yesterday. He was convicted of shooting 62-year-old civilian Oleksandr Shelopov in the northern region of Sumy in the first days of the war. Sergeant Shishimarin, who had pleaded guilty at the start of the trial last week. Ukrainian Prosecutor General Irina Venedikova reacted to the life sentence verdict for the Russian commander, saying her office is investigating 13,000 cases against Russians accused of war crimes, and she vowed to prosecute each one of them. If Russian soldiers decided to do such atrocities, she said, we will find everyone. Today, we have more than 13,000 cases, only about war crimes. It means that we investigate cases about killing civilians, raping them, torturing them in Kyiv region, in Sumer region, in Chernihiv region, in all territories which are under attack, under shelling, under occupation. We have huge number of these investigations. For today, we have now suspects in war crimes more than 50 persons. And such trials, which are absolutely objective, which are open for all people, for all journalists from all parts of the planet. It means that we do everything open under rule of law and such proceedings. I think that it's good possibility for Russian soldiers, for Russian commanders to understand that if they decided 
to do such atrocities, to kill, to rape, to loot, to torture, we will find everyone, early or later, but we will identify all of yours. We start to prosecute and you will, will be responsible for all your atrocities. Ukrainian Prosecutor General Irina Venetikova. Judge Serhi Afanovov pronounced Sergeant Shishamarin guilty of violating the laws and customs of war and committing premeditated murder. The verdict can be appealed. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Kim Jong-un attended the funeral for a top North Korean official, that's according to state media there, helping carry his coffin as the country maintained the much-disputed claim its coronavirus outbreak is subsiding. The official Korean Central News Agency said Kim attended the funeral on Sunday of, of Hyun Kol Hai, a Korean People's Army Marshal who reportedly played a key role in grooming him as the country's next leader before Kim's father, Kim Jong-il, died in late 2011. State media photos showed a bare-faced Kim Jong-un carrying Hyun's coffin with other men wearing masks before he threw earth onto his grave at the National Cemetery. Last week, North Korea announced the first confirmed case of COVID-19 inside the country since then. There have been at least 1.7 million fever cases, as they call them, with about half in quarantine and dozens of deaths so far. The Omicron BA.2 variant was found in at least one of the deaths. North Korea and Eritrea have both refused to join global vaccine-sharing initiatives, leaving their populations vulnerable to fast-spreading variants of the virus. Eritrea, under longtime President Isaias Afwerki, has ignored requests by other African nations to join COVAX, the global vaccination effort backed by the WHO, World Health Organization. In December, the head of the African Centers for Disease Control said Eritrea was the only member of the African Union that hadn't joined the family of 55 member states that are moving forward with vaccination. But he added, we are not giving up. WHO Director General Tedros Ghebreyesus outlined the problem. The Democratic People's Republic of Korea, DPRK, has announced through their state media their first outbreak of COVID-19 with more than 1.4 million suspected cases since late April. WHO is deeply concerned at the risk of further spread of COVID-19 in the country, particularly because the population is unvaccinated and many have underlying conditions putting them at risk of severe disease and death. We're also concerned about Eritrea, another country that has not started vaccinating its population. WHO have requested that the Democratic People's Republic of Korea share data and information. And WHO has offered to provide a package of technical support and supplies, included diagnostic tests, essential medicines, and vaccines ready to be deployed to the country. The Director General of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros Cabrezas. Another top WHO official is Dr. Maria Vankerkov. She says WHO is ready to help both countries at any time. We have been offering support and we have a number of recommended priority actions which, with regards to surveillance, with regards to the use of testing, and importantly, increasing vaccination. 
We have offered support in the form of technical assistance, in the form of medical supplies, tests, vaccines, and we are ready to deploy those. It's a matter of using a comprehensive approach, as we've talked about with all countries, using the tools at hand to be able to detect the virus, to be able to support populations who are at risk, particularly for severe disease. And we have those tools that are ready to be used. WHO's Dr. Mike Ryan adds, WHO can only enter a country with that country's permission. WHO stands ready to support both North Korea and Eritrea with our partners in, in, do, in, in doing that. But other, beyond that, WHO has no special powers to intervene in a, in a sovereign state. Um, it would be clearly of interest to surrounding states and other states to work with both countries to encourage them to take the action necessary to protect their population and by extension protect populations in countries around them. But WHO bears no particular power and would not and cannot intervene in a sovereign state without the express wish and intent and invitation of that state. But other states may wish to work with the two countries to encourage them to participate in this global effort. That's the World Health Organization's Dr. Mike Ryan. In North Korea, the government rejected doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine out of apparent concerns about potential side effects. It also turned down the delivery of nearly 3 million doses of China's Sinovac vaccine, saying the shipments should go to other countries suffering more severe outbreaks. Meanwhile, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention expressed concern this week about an unusual outbreak of monkeypox in the United Kingdom. Seven confirmed in one probable case of monkeypox has been discovered in the UK since early May, an unusually large number given that human monkeypox cases are uncommon and are especially rare outside West and Central Africa. Transmission is thought to occur mainly through virus-laced droplets, but direct contact with lesions or bodily fluids from an infected person or indirect contact via contaminated clothing or linens can also be result in transmission. There's also, as we will hear later, reports that sexual transmission, particularly between men, are a source. Although human monkeypox cases outside Africa are rare, in recent years have been a spate of exported cases to the United States, the UK, Israel, and Singapore. Monkeypox has symptoms similar to but milder than smallpox, which was declared eradicated in 1980. There are at least two vaccines with some protection against the disease. WHO's Dr. Van Kerkhove had this to say about monkeypox. What we're looking at here is a number of um, uh, studies that are ongoing to better understand, number one, the extent of circulation of monkeypox um, in London uh, among communities with men of sex with men um, and making sure that testing is occurring, that isolation of men or people who are suspected of having monkeypox are isolated and that they receive the appropriate clinical care. What we really need to understand is the basic epidemiology of monkeypox. This once again highlights the threat of viruses like this. This is an orthopox virus. This is one that is on our radar. We really need to better understand the extent of monkeypox in endemic countries like in DRC and in, and in Nigeria, Central African Republic and others to really understand uh, how much is circulating and the risk that it poses for people who are living there as well as the risk of exportation. So we are working with a number of partners to pull together advancing our understanding on the epidemiology in terms of transmission, especially the use of antivirals, the use of vaccines to help prevent this. COVID-19 is just one of the virus is one of the diseases that WHO was looking at. Monkeypox, of course, is another. Ebola is another. And there are many others we cannot afford to take our eye off the ball on. There are many people that are working on this. 
at the present time, it's seven cases, uh, confirmed cases in the UK, with an additional one probable case. There's a number of key actions that are underway in the UK, as well as in countries across Africa. We have reached out through our European regional office to raise awareness about monkeypox, looking at people with unexplained rash, particularly in communities of men who have sex with men, just to add monkeypox as a potential diagnosis to make sure that we have the right testing underway. Dr. Maria Vankerkov of the World Health Organization. And in New York, the live-in partner of New York City subway shooting victim Daniel Enriquez railed against rampant New York City transit violence today. As he said, the slain man was taking the subway because he didn't want to pay Uber's prices anymore. He stopped taking Uber effing maybe a couple of weeks ago, Adam Pollock, 54, said. He always took Uber, has since the pandemic, to work, you know, and on Sundays. He wasn't a subway person, Pollock added. It was the surge pricing, the $40 each way. He just didn't want to. So he stopped about two weeks ago and started taking the subway again. Pollock now blames surging crime in the city subway system for taking the life of his partner of 18 years. Enriquez, 48, was in the last car of a Manhattan-bound Q train around 11.42 a.m. Sunday when a deranged gunman shot him in the chest and mortally wounded him. Police say the shooting was random and unprovoked. The shooter, who's still on the loose, fled the Canal Street station, leaving Enriquez dying on the floor of the subway train. Mayor Eric Adams had this comment today. I'll say to the family of uh, Daniel Enriquez, uh, who was lost, uh, we lost him on the subway system uh, yesterday uh, when the gunman shot him. Uh, for what appears to be an unprovoked attack on our safety. Our heart goes out to the families, and on behalf of 8.8 million New Yorkers, uh, we mourn with you, and you are in our prayers. We will find the person responsible for this action. And it just renews our calls uh, to deal with the overproliferation of guns on our streets, uh, even after uh, the bullet takes the life of an innocent person, the emotional trauma, uh, continues to rip apart the anatomy of our city, and it goes on for a long period of time. And so, again, we want to lift the family up with prayer. Mayor Eric Adams. Pollock said Enriquez was born in Williamsburg but moved to California with his family as a young child and later moved to Seattle before returning to New York City to attend NYU. He says he was just one of those lucky guys who got a job at Morgan Stanley right out of school and then got a better job at Goldman Sachs. He worked at Morgan Stanley from the late 90s to 2013, then Goldman in 2013. Pollock said his partner was a gifted and talented man who had a master's in Latin studies. Enriquez taught himself guitar at the start of the pandemic lockdown and learned Italian and Portuguese in addition to the English and Spanish he grew up speaking. Pollock said Enriquez's parents hailed from the Mexican city of Chiatla. He was a nice, interesting person, he said. A lot of depth going on. And finally, the trees of East River Park were the subject of a gathering by a group of people led by the Reverend Billy of the Church of Stop Shopping Choir. Reverend Billy uh, was seen standing around the trunks of hundreds of trees that were cut down against uh, the community's wishes, truly, in a lot of ways, although with the support of the community board for a flood control project called the Eastside Coastal Resiliency Project. Reverend Billy sat on one of the tree stumps that were left after the cut down. It's eventually going to take down a thousand trees and had this to say. Sapling here at the beginning. And then you had the patience to live with people and observe us. And now your value is square footage of the land where you happen to be planted. 
the Riverview luxury tower apartments that they can plunge into the clouds above. We know now that these are conveyors of information. All of this, the roots, the stems, the flowers, the leaves, the branches in the wind, all conveying, talking, talking and listening in a community, in a language that we don't understand. But now we know that this is all alive with storytelling. And it seems to me that what they're doing here is what they also try to do to us as consumers. When they come down on us with 10,000 advertisements every day, they try to divide us into little categories and labels, issues, process us so that we are no longer conveying information. We are only just pure value, just money, monetized. But those stories, those unique observations, the, the living life that these trees that are still standing here, they are listening. All of us in this neighborhood, the people, the children in these buildings, we all appreciate your shade and the life that you gave us and then we know that you will continue to live and we will find a way to meet in the middle as we adopt as we talk to the earth the reverend billy yesterday at east river park his ode to the trees that are being chopped down by the city for a flood control project known as the east side coastal resiliency project And that's some of the news for Monday, May 23rd, 2022. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.